0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also with us this evening is, for the first time in studio, although we've heard from him a couple of times before, uh, Brian Hugh, who is the founding editor at New Bloom Magazine. Brian, uh, glad to meet you in person. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me. It's great meeting at last.
1: Absolutely. And uh, last up, by phone, we have Donovan Smith, who is a frequent contributor and ICRT's correspondent in central Taiwan. Donovan, good to have you back on the show.
0: Yeah, it's great to be back.
1: On the show today, uh, we have got the latest on the ATM heist, uh, which has been dragging on for a bit. Uh, Suffice it to say, Ocean's Eleven, it ain't. Uh, Lots of uh, exciting little tidbits on ways that this thing went wrong. Then uh, we'll be taking a look at the tragic tour bus incident that left 26 dead uh, and has also raised questions about the safety of Taiwan's tour bus fleet. Uh, Then we got some politics. Uh, The DPP, of course, held its central standing committee meeting over the weekend. So uh, some stuff to go into there. Uh, A lot of laws uh, we've been discussing recently are also hitting a bit of a bumpy patch. So politics in general on shaky footing here in Taiwan. Then we'll bip on over to the South China Sea, check out uh, the latest there, uh, take a bit of a pit stop in Zhanghua County, where recent survey findings suggest that one industry group may be responsible for widespread environmental contamination. And we'll end things out in space, of all places. Uh, So we're going on a bit of a journey today. Get ready for that. Uh, But before we get to any of that stuff, uh, we're going to be starting right back here in northern Taiwan with this whole uh, bank heist thing. And we've just uh, been getting little updates uh, every day about new money found here, new money found there, uh, new people arrested here, new people arrested there. Uh, I think at this point, I mean, most of the money is back. Uh, Most of the people that are still in Taiwan that were responsible for this uh, have been arrested. Uh, At this point, Gavin, we're allowed to laugh at this story, right? We don't need to take this seriously anymore?
3: Uh, I don't think... No, I don't think we should.
1: We should? Okay, we still need to keep our serious face on?
3: Absolutely, because I would never make the jest of anything that was remotely serious. You are
1: not one to do so. Okay, no, fair enough. No, fair enough. No, but they give us the very serious update on this very, very serious, serious story. serious
3: update. Keith, is police are still now looking for 5 million NT, which is slightly better when they were... Well, originally, of course, they were looking for some 80 million NT. See, now that's th- progress. There you go. Now they've whittled it down to 5 million NT, which is still missing from the first bank ATM heist. Now, the, the fact that they've only got 5 million NT missing so far is due to several things. First of all, of course, they arrested two Romanian nationals, a a couple of weeks ago at a hotel in Taipei. There they found 60 million NT. I believe we talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. So they had 60 million NT off the top there. Now, a Latvia national who was arrested in connection with a case... He went rather Shirley Bassey, and he sang and he basically said, oh, I hid 20 million in a park in Taipei. So this week, the police took the Latvian National to the park, which happened to be the Westlake Park in Nehu district, where they found a black bag. Now, while the Latvian National said he put some 20 million in the bag before he stashed it in the woods, when police counted the money they found in the bag, they only counted 12 million NT. Now, that Mm -hmm. left a missing million NT.
1: The plot thickens.
3: It gets funnier. Now, it
1: gets more serious.
3: Uh, no, it gets funnier because okay. on Wednesday of this week, Wednesday evening of this week, mm-hmm. a 65-year-old man and his son, they turned himself into the police station. Well, they didn't turn himself in. They turned, they turned him, the money in. They turned a bag in. They mm-hmm. said they found in the park.
1: But, lo and behold, something was still missing. Yes.
3: Yeah, Five million uh, NT was missing from this bag, so that's mm. how they've whittled it. So they took four and a half million from the guy who turned it into the police, and they're still missing five million.
1: If now- the Cohen brothers are not already working on a movie version of all this, then they have lost a lot of credibility with me.
3: Now, what's ironic is this 65-year-old man and his son. They said they found the money Wednesday morning in the park, and of course, on Tuesday, news got out that the money was probably stashed in a park in Nehu. Hmm. So questions are now being asked about, hang on a minute, were they just on an amble through the park to enjoy the scenery, or were they actually looking for the money? Now, it gets even funnier, because when the man went to the police station with the four and a half million in a plastic bag, they said, the police, this is, turned round to the gentleman and said, is this all you have, sir? To which the gentleman looked at them and went, Oh, no, I've got a bit more here. And he took some money out of his pocket and gave it to the police, saying Mm. this was also in the money I found in the park. Mm -hmm. Now, this man is now facing possibly five years in prison because police say there was a 13-hour delay from him finding the money and turning it in.
1: Right. And his pocket is, of course, not where that money uh, was supposed to go.
3: No, but in a more serious note, the police do say that they believe the remaining 5 million NT could either still be in Taiwan or... It has already been distributed among the 14, I don't know when they came up with that number, but 14 alleged money carriers mm-hmm. that have been connected with the ATM theft ring.
1: Most of whom at this point are actually out of Taiwan. Well,
3: but yeah, they know, these 14 people, like you said, Keith, most of them are out of Taiwan, but they have photographs who they are. They have mm-hmm. They have their suspicions who these people are. All right what's being played down at the moment is the fact when it first happened they said it was an international crime ring Mm -hmm. but now that's sort of been played down a bit Mm -hmm. if you see what i mean so we don't know whether it's a hardcore russian crime ring or just a bunch of people who got together and went hold on i've got a good idea
1: right well in any event uh the execution of this Uh, perhaps leaves something to be desired. So that's how we come to have, I guess, a happy ending that we can... Minus uh, 5 million NT. Minus, well, we're still waiting. Who knows? How about
3: the insurance companies are glad?
1: Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) They are happier than anybody here. All right, uh, well, we are going to move now away from that story, uh, from farce to tragedy and Tuesday's tour bus fire. uh, As mentioned, uh, this fire led to the death of 26 Uh, 24 of those were Chinese tourists in Taiwan. Uh, Then there was a Taiwanese bus driver uh, and a Taiwanese tour guide. So obviously this story uh, involves not just Taiwan, but also uh, many family members uh, in China as well. Uh, Gavin, uh, give us a a bit of an update here. I mean, at first, most people that were looking at the story suspected that there might be something wrong with the bus's exits, and that might be why it was so difficult for people to escape. Uh, Now it's looking like the exits were okay.
3: Uh yes, the original, like you said, Keith. Originally, people thought maybe the there was a either a. They reported an abnormality. Basically, the day after the fire, investigators basically said we found an abnormality in one of the fire exit doors. Now, this abnormality was played up at the time, but it now appears that there was nothing. Physi- there was nothing f- physically. There was nothing wrong with the emergency exit at all. You could mm. have opened it. What the problem was, they said that the emergency exit handle was covered up, mm. which meant that the poor people on the bus were. It was thick with smoke. They couldn't see. They didn't know that you had to peel back a piece of sticky substance, sticky something that was on the door, covering the door handle, to actually open the fire door.
1: Mm. All right. So. Which, in a
3: way, is worse because the door could have been opened. There was also questions about why a policeman, of course, the famous picture of the policeman trying to break the window, he couldn't open the door from the outside. And there was questions why he couldn't open the door from the outside, and they believed that he couldn't open the door from the outside basically because it had been slightly damaged in the, when the bus went into the outer guardrail.
1: Mm. All right, so a couple of uh, ramifications for this. Uh, we're now hearing about expanded inspections of Taiwan's uh,
3: tour buses. Yes, the government yesterday said they're going to step up inspections of tour buses. This is due to concerns that, so far the officials believe that an electrical short circuit linked to a power overload caused the fire on the bus. Mm -hmm. And the government basically says now, of course this happens because tour buses here are renowned for putting extra things in them. Karaoke okay machines, mm-hmm. water dispensers, video players, whatever.
1: More electronics more brings, electronic, more chances of course, for... the more
3: things you plug in, the more chance there ever be in a fire. Mm-hmm. So, basically the government says that they're going to now ensure that vehicle safety certification centres across the island strengthen their inspection of tour bus electrical systems, and all tour buses will now be required to provide detailed maintenance records when undergoing routine inspections. Prior to this being said, on Thursday Only vehicles 10 years or older were required to provide maintenance records going into inspections.
1: All right. So uh, a little bit of industry reform right there. Uh, Just a a really sad story that kind of came out of nowhere this Tuesday. Um, The families uh, are now in Taiwan. The Chinese families are...
3: Yes, apparently like some 49 family members of the 24 Chinese tourists who were killed on Tuesday arrived in Taiwan Thursday afternoon. Uh, Then they were immediately escorted to the Zhongli District Funeral Parlor for the identification of the bodies. Yeah. Of course, it was 24 Chinese nationals died, the youngest one of whom was 11 years old. There was three children in all, but the youngest one was 11.
1: Right, Okay. so those family members are here now. Uh, And uh, Donovan, this is uh, just a tragedy in its own rights, but uh, it also uh, has some ramifications for cross-strait relations as well.
0: Yes, well, I think it obviously has damaged Taiwan's reputation. Uh, in China. Apparently, there's been a lot of commentary uh, over there. Uh, one of the officials who came over with the family members said that uh, China is, quote, extremely dissatisfied with Taiwan's safety measures for visiting mainland tourists, uh, is what they said. This is the uh, Association for Tourism Exchange across the Taiwan Straits, Secretary General. Uh, another interesting thing is, is that they came out and reiterated that, no, 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 no we're not actually back to talking with Taiwan, even though they they actually were. Mm. Um,
1: So very important to make sure nobody thinks that uh, relations are improving.
3: And, of course, yeah. this all comes when China has reportedly threatened to ban its nationals from visiting the
2: island. I mean, this could be used as an excuse, possibly, for them to do that. And I think it's being definitely used in China's soft power initiatives against Taiwan. Um, I think the important matter, though, is how Taiwan handles it versus, for example, incidents of Chinese, uh, Taiwanese tourists dying in incidents in, in China. Um, I mean, you know, there's been past tourist deaths of Chinese tourists in recent years in Taiwan. But, for example, the family members have been allowed to, into Taiwan, both for, you know, funeral arrangements and, you know, seeing the bodies. There, You know, in, in 1994, for example, there was like a incident of 24 Taiwanese tourists dying in China, which was actually a case of murder. But, you know, they were Taiwanese families were not allowed to see the bodies and things like that. There was a cover-up. So I think open transparency might be one way to... Show a difference between, say, Taiwan and China in handling such matters.
0: Now, relating to the tourist numbers, um, the number uh, the Taiwan has dropped out of the top ten, according to two different sources, the top ten most popular uh, tourism destinations. Uh, the number of tourists to Taiwan uh, just recently dropped uh, dropped twenty percent since June, uh, and it's down between, from May and June this year. It was down. Um, from China uh, proper, the, it's down by a little over fifty thousand. But uh, Hong Kong and Macau tourists has been have been rising.
1: Now, getting back to you know the events of this week. Uh, like I said I mean of course uh, the, the the bus accident a tragedy uh, in its own right, but interesting that it kind of coincides with uh, some pretty similar stories, uh, similar cross rate controversies you know talking about those dropping tourism numbers. Uh, this sparked I guess we could call it a meme, uh, not exactly uh, well a, a fake advertisement campaign uh, from some. Internet users in Taiwan. You know, they made it look like a travel advertisement, but it was sort of touting the benefits of the drop in uh, tourists here in Taiwan, Chinese tourists here in Taiwan. Uh, That sparked some outrage on the mainland, a little bit of a back and forth there. Uh, Then, in another case, there was actor Leon Dai who was uh, booted off a a Chinese show uh, for, uh, well, some who were accusing him of having pro-Taiwan independence views that got politicized really fast there was kind of a snarky response from many here in Taiwan uh, that started like a apologize to China sort of meme uh, then that also got something of a negative response from uh, China so a lot of back and forth some of it lighthearted, some of it kind of on the nastier end of things Just a lot of stuff really happening in this regard all at once, all in this week or last week and a half or so. Uh, I mean, Brian, what do you take away from all of this? I mean, is this in any way related to the South China Sea ruling and kind of a spike
2: in nationalism on both sides? Uh, Does it go back further than that? What what are we seeing here? I think that's definitely true. Um, It's interesting that the fact that there's been such reactions from both the Taiwanese side and the Chinese side creates kind of a feedback loop whereby, you know, Taiwanese... Uh, netizens commenting on this, making fun of China. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, if you actually look on the the event page that they've made for this Apologize to China contest, you'll see like Chinese netizens have crossed the firewall and are kind of arguing back and forth with people. I mean, you can tell because it's all in simplified characters. Um, but generally, just there have been a lot of things to amplify kind of nationalism or identity on both sides. Um, again, you know, it kind of feeds back into each other. China being so aggressive on the South China Seas issue. Um, Taiwan also making claims to Taiping Island um, and then this issue with, you know, Leon Dai I mean, it, it just creates a feedback loop whereby, yeah, it all just comes back together uh, Donovan, do you have anything to add there?
0: Yeah, actually, there's an interesting point I thought that Jenna Cody made on, on Lao Ren Cha, the, the blog <clears throat> is that she noted that when when China they, they have a sort of a very a heavy bullying tactic, they've got both the, the United Front and then they have the you know, the 50 Cent Armies and And they all pile on board whenever these controversies come along and try and essentially overwhelm everybody into towing their line, which is what the, and that the, the, this fake apology things, you know, oh, sorry for hurting, you know, the feelings of the Chinese people and throwing back all of this demanding of apologies for, you know, defending our five gazillion years worth of Chinese history, um... And, you know, the feelings of the Chinese people and sort of throwing it back as humor is, is in a lot of ways helps, it helps diffuse a lot of this. And it undermines China's case uh, internationally, you know, when they try and get the international press to sort of support their view of things. And then Taiwanese and then and Hong Kongese come in and just totally disrupt this with, you know, throwing it back in their face in the form of humor uh, it's actually really quite an effective comeback, I think.
3: Yes, they're not known for their sense of humor, those people who run the show in Beijing, are they?
0: No, they're definitely not. <laughs> but what's interesting is that this this whole you know, apology thing really got a lot of international press, more mm. so than than the incidents that caused it.
2: I think, I think there's definitely a tendency for these kind of actions to really backfire because, you know, you, you don't diffuse Taoni's identity by doing things like this because, you know, you really just kind of get Taiwanese people angry and that, you know, reinforces a sense of separate identity. Um, but in that sense, uh, the, the real question is whether the response from the Taiwanese side is more mature or pragmatic or rational. Because, you know, back to the bus incident, for example, like when, when Chinese tourists die in Taiwan, there's this kind of openness and transparency. When the same thing happens, otherwise in China, there's maybe not. Um, in this case, you know, there's humor. And you see, if you look at the, you know the event page, like you have all these like, Chinese users or netizens just cursing off Taiwanese people and Taiwanese people sometimes respond with humor. But if it does become nasty, then it becomes, you know, two nationalisms that seem kind of indistinguishable. Mm. Um, There definitely is a tendency, for example, for Taiwanese to perceive all Chinese as just like an undifferentiated mass of seething nationalism. Mm. And on the other side, actually, that's also true, that Mm -hmm. Chinese also perceive Taiwanese as just overwhelmingly hating china and that's why they're kind of dangerous and you know they allow the u.s to encroach on china and so forth so there's Mm. kind of these parallels but the taiwanese side has to be more rational and you know take these things less seriously
1: Mm. so a strong endorsement right there for witty snarkiness rather than nastiness Uh, hopefully (laughs) we can see more of that Uh, all right well uh, we are going to have to leave that story because we have one more to cover before we Get to the break, Uh, and that means that we are heading into the realm of heady politics, Uh, and we'll be starting off at a uh, meeting that took place over the weekend. It was, in fact, the Democratic Progressive Party's Central Executive Committee meeting. And before everybody you know, turns off their radio, because that uh, just almost put me to sleep just saying those words, uh, let's turn it over to Gavin. Gavin can always put a little personality into these boring bureaucratic affairs. Gavin.
3: Yes, that was this past weekend the, at the meeting of the National Congress. It was the DPP's National Congress meeting. It was held on Sunday last week. And they actually, during the meeting, they came up with the 30-member Central Executive Committee, basically, they also came up with another committee, which is the name of which I forget. But the most interesting thing that came up from this meeting... There were several other things that came up from the meeting. But the most interesting thing is a proposal to scrap the Taiwan independence clause in the DPP charter.
1: Now, interestingly, yes, that uh, that was discussed... Uh, but I think a lot of commentators looked at that and they saw, OK, well, uh, Ty decided, uh, President Tsai decided just to kind of shunt it off uh, to committee. Uh, we'll review that in the future. So a lot of people sort of wrote that off. Uh, Donovan, you're saying maybe we shouldn't.
0: No, you know, it, basically, I, I, here's my take on this, is that is Tsai that might well actually support that. Um, she's a negotiator. That's her, her background is as a negotiator and as a lawyer. So she knows the, you know, she she understands the the importance of language in the, in in these situations. And right now, I think that what she's doing is she's keeping it in committee on a, uh, you know, on a uh, as to study. And if she thinks that that making this change would, would give her any uh, would give her more flexibility in dealing with China. Um, And she may be waiting for signals from China on this. But I think if if she feels like she could get some some positive advantage out of that in dealing with China, then she may push
3: it forward yeah like donovan said they the dpp could eventually change it but at the moment what's being floated is a clause that reads the maintaining of the cross straight status quo and they're saying that could be entered into the dpp charter to replace the clause supporting taiwan independence mm. of course the independence clause was introduced in 1991 and at the time of course it called for the declaration of a republic of taiwan and a whole new constitution
1: Right. And uh, even though if you talk to uh, officials in the DPP, many of them will say that this is a non-issue, uh, the DPP is not currently actively pursuing any kind of independence, uh, you know, just having that clause on paper, uh, well, you know, it's a stated goal, and it's, it's, it's impossible to uh, completely overlook that. Uh, Donovan, do you, do you see changing this clause, taking it out, as having uh, any effect on cross-strait relations?
0: Well, it, it kind of depends on the on the perception of China. I mean, China traditionally has, because the, they've always said that they that they'll have party to party communication with the KMT, but never the DPP as long as the independence clause remains in the party charter. So they wouldn't talk to the DPP when they're in or out of power. So this means that if they were to remove that, then in theory, at least, <clears throat> they would con- they would be willing to talk to the DPP. Uh, whether they're in power or not, on a party-to-party level. Mm-hmm. Now, the <clears throat> China might view it as a also as a sign of goodwill if if the you know Thai were to oversee that for, uh, uh, with the party. But on the other hand, they may explicitly say, uh, "Well, that doesn't mean anything because you haven't officially come out and." and and <clears throat> said you're for one China or the 1992 consensus. Hmm. So I sus- that's why I suspect that what Tai is doing is she's for- she's putting this out there as a and floating it to see if she thinks that she might, this might give her a little bit more leverage with, or uh, more negotiating freedom with The, the uh, interesting thing is, with
2: is that there's the strong possibility this will offend Tsai's support base because, you know, this has historically been something that's been at the core of so-called historical mission, the DPP.
3: The DPP has said, and this is political speak, the DPP has been quoted as saying that the move to change the clause is aimed at responding to mainstream public opinion and seeking international support.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, that's a fancy way of saying, uh, testing out the waters, seeing what's going on, uh, much like Donovan was saying there a second ago. All right. Uh, so very, very quickly, before we get to the break, we have one more political story to get to. Uh, we are right now, uh, as we speak, in an extraordinary session of the Legislative Yuan. Uh, extraordinary because, you know, it's extended. We've added some time, uh, and we have added this time to cover the party assets bill situation and the Labor Standards Act. Those are probably the two uh, most important bills that we're looking at. A couple of other things that they'll be discussing, but those are the big ones that they wanted to make extra time for. Uh, party assets bill, of course, focus on the KMT's assets, allegedly ill-gotten assets, addressing that whole controversy. Uh, Then the Labor Standards Act, uh, answering some of the labor controversies that we've been talking about on the show for the last several weeks. Party assets bill uh, looks like it has uh, not been dealt with yet. Uh, You know, yesterday it was actually the first day of the extraordinary legislative session. They tried to take on the Labor Standards Act, Gavin, but it didn't go far.
3: No, it was an extraordinarily short session yesterday, actually. Cause oh. Very short. Pan, 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 pan. Because basically the members of the Legislative Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee, strange name I know, they did plan to review a proposal for a five-day work week. However, opposition lawmakers actually grabbed the podium, grabbed the microphone, grabbed everything, took the podium over, even before the meeting had started. Mm. And what made it even more farcical was the fact that the DPP committee head, Lin Xu Fun, didn't even bother to show up for the meeting.
1: Some speculation, some accusations that perhaps uh, she did not show up because she didn't want her fingerprints on a uh, law that was bound to be so controversial
3: possibly possibly or she didn't turn up because someone rang her and said look you're not going to get you're not going to get to say anything today so don't bother coming in which
0: I, yeah the NPP I think took over the podium it was mm. six or seven in the morning six or yeah.
3: seven in the morning and they, they were followed by KMT lawmakers and people first party people basically there you go anyway the meeting yesterday of the extraordinary session was extraordinarily short and it finished at 11 a.m. you can only make
1: that joke once
3: hey but it finished at 11 a.m with nothing being done basically the mm-hmm. DPP said okay let's scrap the meeting and let's have a very short day so they all went to lunch What the issue is, of course, is the cabinet has proposed a five-day working week. Unfortunately, one of the Saturday or Sunday or the other two days of the seven-day week is not considered a holiday, is considered flexible. Basically meaning that employers could theoretically make their workers come in on the supposed flexi day. Mm-hmm. which means they'd still be working six days a week instead of five days a week. This is what the KMT, the New Power Party, and the People First Party argue, and they say they are basically going to seek a Labour Standards Act amendment that would make it mandatory for two fixed days off a week.
1: Right, so it's a, it, it's a big old mess in the legislature uh, caused by you know a, a bit of a standoff between Labour and industry. Of course, industry really not wanting to see those uh, two fixed days off a week. Uh, and now, uh, Brian, you were actually covering uh, some mm. of the labor movements, uh, what they were doing this week, um, mm. because uh, there was a lot of activity on that
2: side, uh, and it took the form of uh, a sit-in and a hunger strike. Yes, that's right. There was a hunger strike by eight workers, um, union members, um, it was part of an organization called, uh, Gong which is, you know, workers struggle or something like that. Mm. Um, they've been active since before elections, organizing demonstrations against, you know, the incoming DPP administration with, you know, with the notion that in mind that once in power, the Thai administration might backslide on some of its campaign promises. Mm. So we're seeing the results of that now. I mean, it was a hunger strike by eight workers, um, these were, some of them were leaders of a lot of the big movements. Um, some of them were very, very active during the China Airlines strike, for example. Um, they wanted to push things with the DPP, but the DPP didn't really respond. Um, the MPP kind of, when they occupied the podium, they were kind of responding to that hunger strike in some sense.
1: Mm. Um, so, so so, it's really having consequences in the legislative Iran.
2: It is. Although, you know, it was small. It wasn't as big as, say, the China Airlines strike, or and it was mm-hmm. only eight people. Ling mm-hmm. Shufen um, also is... I mean, you know, a lot of people, the MPP later said that she is maybe the person who's pushed hardest to avoid having, you know, the kind of one flexible workday and one workday. So there's a lot of questions about what her political position is. Mm. But I mean, you know, the workers that were on strike were kind of very critical of the DPP and also how it might set itself apart from past KMT administration, but also just calling on all these other third parties to answer as well, including the new Power Party, which is, you know, of course, more supportive. Mm.
0: What, well, what I, I like about how uh, about uh, how this all played out is is that it was arguing over how much time off uh, of the week that gave gave the legislature a half day off uh, on Thursday.
1: So they're the, <laughs> yeah they're the real winners here. I uh, hope that they spent some of that time uh, well, making it to a KTV, <laughs> hanging out with their family. Who knows, uh, 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 Brian? I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you the closing words here. I mean, where, 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 where is this all going? Is is this just a, a fight? I mean. We all thought that when this new legislature came into town, we were going to be passing some lies. Uh, is, that, is that going to
2: happen anytime soon? Well, I'll say, yeah. I mean, the DPP administration is becoming more and more embattled. I mean, it's interesting that it's the new power party, the KMT and the People First Party, that are now the opposition against them. Right. I mean, even just when the new power party occupied that podium, they were, you know, they were screaming at the KMT back and forth just because, you know, accused, one accusing the other of hip, being hypocritical and his grandstanding on the issue. So now we have the issue of the DPP being challenged, uh, challengers from the opposition. But, you know, that's also just a mixed bag between the MPP and, you know, the Pan Blue, such as the PFP and the KMT.
1: Mm.
3: All right. So, uh, mm-hmm. big Gavin has something. Sod's law, this. <laughs> as we're recording the show, they've just said that they plan to discuss the KMT assets bill this afternoon.
1: There we go. So that's a another little reminder to our listeners that uh, the show is recorded in the morning, which gives us a little bit of gap of time uh, for our news to be out of date by the time that this broadcasts. So uh, for that one little thing, uh, do keep a, an eye on your respective news sources.
3: Well, that bill being read and reviewed has also got the likelihood of becoming an extraordinary short bill when they also crash heads over that so
1: very possible very possible all right well we're gonna uh, just have to leave that entire mess for now when we return uh, a number of legislators made a point of visiting Taiping island this week uh, we will talk about how this issue is getting politicized then uh, new revelations about widespread environmental contamination in zhanghua uh, donovan will fill us in on what we know so far and we'll round out the show with a look to the stars as Taiwan contemplates uh, working with NASA uh, to bring a little rover all the way up to the moon. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, here to his weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Donovan Smith. Running out of ways to introduce this story. Uh, We've been talking about it so many times in recent weeks. uh, You know, what else is there to say? But we keep on getting more and more news about it the South China Sea. The big news, of course, this week is that a number of lawmakers made their way over to Taiping Island to sort of reassert Taiwan's claims to the region. Uh, this, of course, comes in the wake of a rather sweeping ruling from the International Tribunal in The Hague. Uh, that ruling sort of flies in the face of that claim. Uh, they essentially said, uh, Typing Island is not an island. Typing Island is a rock, a mere rock. Uh, and that has implications for uh, how much of this South China Sea Taiwan can lay claim to, uh, you know, whether it's a 12 nautical mile zone or a 200 nautical mile zone. Uh, big implications uh, for fishermen right there. Uh, so, uh, Gavin, apparently these lawmakers are not taking that ruling lying down. Uh, they made a stand on Taiping Island.
3: It was members, eight members of the Legislative Foreign Affairs and National Defense Committee. The delegation was led by KMT lawmaker Jiang Chi Chen. Now, according to Jung, they went to the island to basically prove that it was an island, not a rock. Mm. They went there to say, hey, look, it's got fresh water, and they, they apparently ate a coconut that grows on the island. Mm-hmm. So it does grow things. They also saw, apparently, a demonstration of some Coast Guard military equipment. I mean, some 40mm guns were probably fired off, I presume. They visited the harbour and the regular facilities that, where people go when they visit Taiping Island. And they basically made a statement. Zhang made a statement that basically said, after years of improvement work, Taiping has been transformed into a place that can sustain long-term human habitation. And that he tasted coconut juice produced there. And he noted that the fresh water and various other facilities on the island show it is absolutely an island and not a rock, as ruled by the International Tribunal two weeks ago.
1: Yeah, what are you going to say to that international tribunal?
3: What I liked about I, this trip, actually, before we move on to Donovan or someone, um, mm-hmm. what I liked about this trip, the both the Ministry of National Defence and the lawmakers themselves did say that it wasn't, they didn't, while they went there, no doubt on taxpayers' money, because they had to get to Pingdong, they actually flew to Taiping Island on a basically a military airplane, C-130 transport aircraft, that was making a routine flight to Taiping. So this wasn't a trip that was just laid on for them, which, of course, the last trip that got laid on for lawmakers, the KMT officials, that was for. That got a lot of flack, mm. no pun intended there, but if anyone got that joke, because they had to use a, a, basically an aeroplane that was given to the, them personally by the military.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a bit of a bumpy ride for them. Uh, they were actually followed there by a group of fishermen.
3: Another pun, because they were on a C 130. Well, that's a, that's what I was getting at. That's what I was getting at. They were followed by a bunch of fishermen. In fact, I believe. It's some... not even a
1: pun, it's just a statement of fact.
3: Did you get my flak joke as I well. Did, I did get it. I did get <laughs> it. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, we're moving on here, aren't we? We've got to make this. Typing Island thing very light because it's just going on
1: and on. <laughs> Gavin's getting tired of covering this one. Yeah, and
3: tw- apparently 12 Pingdong-based fishermen sailed to Typing Island on five fishing boats earlier this week and it was... Apparently it's a 12-day protest journey during which the fishermen say that they're going to... Reaffirmed Taiwan's sovereignty over Taiping Island and the waters around it. They're mm. also calling for um, more sort of um, protection from mm-hmm. the Coast Guard and the military when they're operating in waters around Taiping Island, fishing and blah, da, da, What was interesting about this trip was apparently one of the fishermen, the organiser of the event, apparently he told reporters that he was warned by fisheries officials that if he sailed to waters near Taiping Island, he could see his operating license revoked.
1: All right. So uh interestingly here, I mean and this is something that we've already talked about on the show, just a little bit is uh, this controversy, of course, raises uh, a lot of issues of uh, n- national identity, but even beyond national identity, national imagination. What do you imagine Taiwan slash the ROC to be? Uh, is it you know, formed based on the historical claims? Is it formed based on culture and Taiwan, the island proper? I mean, there's a lot of questions, uh, and I think that that's reflected in the fact that, uh, according to one report, uh, only 19% of Taiwan's population was satisfied Uh, with President Tsai's response to the South China Sea ruling. You know, you could either see her response as uh, holding on to a piece of territory that we should just let go. Or you could see it as not strong enough, not uh, working hard enough to, uh, you know, express Taiwan sovereignty claims to the South China Sea. Uh, Brian, what, what, what do you make of all this mess? I mean,
2: notably, it's, it's the very deep blue, very traditionalist KMT that's very interested in visiting Taiping Island. You know, apart from Ma doing it, you know, Hafei Chun, who's in his 90s, went, um, you know, Chang, the legislator that went, he's Chiang Kai-shek's grandson. Um, they're very emphatic on these claims, because historically the KMT has really been bent on kind of asserting ROC sovereignty.
0: But I mean, that being said, actually, you know, Chen Soe-bien went, That's right. uh, and then this latest trip with the legislators, it was half DPP. Um, <clears throat> there's, so there's been there's recently, actually... you know, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, DPP support on this as well. I think
2: uh, a lot of the dissatisfaction might come from that Tsai's response was to send a warship, such an aggressive response. But there are a lot of people within the Pan Green camp even that think if we have this island, we might as well hang on to it. So we should defend it. So that's, that's totally true.
3: Of course, um, former Vice President Annette Liu on Thursday of this week called on President Tsai Ing-wen to file a case at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in regards to Taiwan's claims to the island. And you don't get much more Pan Green than Annette Liu, really, do you?
2: I think the issue is that you know there's the fear that this ruling, at which Taiwan was left at the negotiating table, will become, let's say, the start of a trend in which you know Taiwan's excluded from these different international negotiations, and that will lead to a decrease in Taiwanese sovereignty. So that's maybe the justification from the Pan Green camp.
0: Well, there's a headline in the Philippine Star here saying that Taiwan wants to be, you know, wants in on uh, on Philippine. China talks over the Chi- uh, of the South China Sea, quoting the rep- representative of Taiwan in the Philippines, so mm. they said here that uh, Taiwan wants to be included in multilateral talks in the South China Sea, saying it has turned out to be quote a victim of the r- of the ruling mm.
2: it, is, it is surprising that you know mm. this does seem counterintuitive to forming good relations with you know Southeast Asian countries that also have a claim over these islands, so that 's undermining yeah. relations potentially, yeah
1: right, right. Uh, and that would be part of the criticism that uh, some folks would, you know, that would be the other side of the criticism that uh Taiwan is facing. <sighs> okay, so we're going to give uh, Gavin his wish. We're going to take a break from the South China Sea, uh, come back to domestic affairs. Uh, and uh, those domestic affairs are happening right in the middle of Taiwan, which means that uh, the guy to fill us in on them is Donovan Smith, who, uh, lucky enough, is uh, right on the line right now. Uh so we're gonna be talking now about uh Formosa Plastics Group again. Uh we talked about them a couple weeks ago uh as they got embroiled in a little controversy in Vietnam. Now uh they're in a, another environmental controversy in central Taiwan, at Zhanghua County. Donovan tell us about that.
0: Well that's what the that, that's what the what people think. Um, essentially, there's been a, a lot of talk of pollution in, in the area near the Mailiao complex, which is actually in Yunlin, but all, a lot of the hardest hit people are also just across the Zhou Shui River in uh, southern J- Zhanghua, particularly Taishi and the, the Cheng area. So, following up on, a, on a campaign promises, uh, the County Commissioner Wei Minggu uh, got a 5, million, uh, a 5 million NT dollars study done. Um, and what they did is they got uh, one thousand, they got uh, just over a thousand township residents to undergo urine screenings, and then the results were released last week at a public hearing uh, by the county government. Now this was conducted; it was overseen by the National Health Research Institutes and conducted by uh, National Taiwan University and the Zhang, Zhanghua Christian Hospital, um, and then the budget came from the Zhanghua Health Health Department. So. Now, they discovered that basically half of the residents in Dachung had toxic heavy metals present in their urine, uh, which also raised to uh, up to about 60% the closer to the myelial complex that you got. Now, also they found that a lot of people had what's called TG, TDGA, which is a chemical used in treating VCM and PVC and they also found that a lot of, that 99 people here had this chemical in it and that this also confirmed uh, a study they did previously on school children in uh, near the at a, at, a uh, at an elementary school near the Maileau complex where the which also showed that there was a strong correlation between distance from the complex and to having this chemical in their in their urine. So mm. there's that, plus there's the uh, Taishi area is reportedly has nearly 10% of the population has cancer, though I should note that the population is pretty elderly down there mm. uh, on average. So, so, so we have right those correlations. Now, essentially, it's highly suggestive that the naphtha cracker, the coal-fired power plant, and the PVC and VCM processing uh, Factories and miles could be the cause of the, of these
1: health issues. But uh, as, as you said, we're still really dealing with uh, correlation, circumstantial evidence. There's there's really no smoking gun.
0: No, I mean there's the. I mean it's it, it's highly suggestive that a chemical used in process, you know, used in the in you know in the um, processing of the PVC and the VCM. Uh, would happen to be in the, in the blood, uh, you know, in the, sorry, in the urine of people living closer and closer to the complex. I mean, that's certainly mm. suggestive, but it's not proof.
1: So, uh, what's the reaction been like? Uh, I'm, I mean, obviously, this is uh, an important industry for folks that live uh, in Zhanghua, but uh, it impacts quite clearly uh, the, 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 the lives of people very directly to have uh, so many carcinogens in the environment. So, are, are, are people really having a big response to this?
0: Well yeah I mean a lot of the the, the residents they kind of knew that uh, you know uh, there I've seen quotes suggesting that they kind of knew that the results were going to be bad, uh, but they were still kind of upset and outraged at uh, at that mm. uh, you know when they they finally got their their suspicions confirmed um, now the county the Genoa county government is asking the central government to form a task force to to look into how to handle this um, they're not specifically coming out with any particular demands yet on the Formosa Plastics Group. They want to do more research into it. Is basically basically where everything stands right now.
1: Alright, so uh, another unfolding story uh, once again involving the Formosa Plastics Group, uh, but uh, like we said uh, still more questions than answers so uh, we're just going to have to uh, keep our eyes on it, see where it leads. Uh, And we're going to head now to our final story for the broadcast right here. Uh, Apparently NASA, or uh, the organization in the U.S. known as the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, well, they're planning a little trip to the moon in just a couple of years. In the early 2020s, they're hoping to stage something of a mining expedition on the moon. Going to be one of the first trips to the moon in some time. Well, Taiwan is getting in on the action. Uh, Very exciting for us. Uh, Always excited about any kind of space news here in Taiwan. Uh, Taipei Times reported earlier this week uh, that the Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology uh, is going to work with NASA to build what uh, it's calling a lunar lander. That's going to be responsible for carrying out parts of the mission. Uh, Now, obviously, explaining all of this is way above my pay grade. Uh, We've got engineering in the mix. We've got science in the mix. Uh, So I'm in way over my head. But lucky for me, uh, we have a guy on the phone who can lay it all out for us. Uh, that guy being uh, the director of International Cooperation Program for the Zhongshan Institute, Hank Han. Hank, thanks for joining us this evening. My pleasure. So let's just start out by making sure that our listeners really understand exactly what uh, this project is. So I, I keep on seeing this phrase, lunar lander. Uh, it, basically, uh, Taiwan is going to be responsible for the development of uh, a, a little landing device. Tell us a little bit about that.
4: Okay. Just from the world. The lunar Lander uh, actually will be a project for the design, manufacturing, and the test of an unmanned interplanetary transporter. Okay. So I can say lunar Lander actually is a transporter which uh, will uh, carry a payload. Uh, in this um, Moon Lander project carries a rover which will be used to uh, uh, try to detect where they are water or ice on the surface of moon at a polar region.
1: Mm. And so when we say that uh, Taiwan is going to be responsible for the development of uh, this lander, uh, how independently is Taiwan going to be working on this? Is this going to be a 100% made-in-Taiwan sort of device?
4: Not really, uh, because uh, this will be the first time we partic- partic- uh, participate in that kind of uh, a mission. So basically, we will try to understand uh, what the mission really is. And uh, with the mission requirement, then we will design and fabricate fabricate, uh, this lander. However, there are still some uh, uh, critical components which will be provided by uh, uh, by NASA.
1: Mm, So it's really going to be a cooperative effort between uh, Taiwan and NASA.
4: Yeah, it should be a a cooperation program.
1: Mm. Uh, and at, at this point, is this uh, a certainty? Or is, is this project definitely underway, or, or is it still in the discussion phase?
4: Well, we better say it's still uh, in planning, so it's uh, basically under discussion.
1: All right. Uh, so uh, we will uh, be keeping an eye on that. Now, I, I think a, a lot of uh, our listeners may not be entirely familiar with Taiwan's uh, space program. There is actually a, something of a space program in Taiwan. The, I interviewed uh, the head of the National Space Organization earlier this year, and he was telling me about uh, some of the work that has gone into Taiwan's satellites. There are a number of satellites that have been up there since the early 90s. Um, so Taiwan has a little bit of experience with uh, space technology. How did Taiwan get involved in this particular project?
4: We have uh, participated in a very important international cooperation program which is termed the uh, uh, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer to be sure it's just an AMS program. So for this program it started from 1995 and we joined this project at that time and there are uh, 15 countries and more than Six hundred engineers and scientists joined together for this program, so the purpose for this program actually tried to uh, put a uh, huge uh, instrument i mean it's a scientific instrument and place on the international Space Station to detect uh, cos- the uh, high energy particles uh, in the cosmic ray so you know, it's a we have actually participated uh, project since nineteen uh, ninety five till now so we we, we, we have actually have some experience on the uh, uh, engineering experience for the space program.
1: Hmm. And so this is a project uh, that has already been carried out. Yes. Uh, and it, I, I guess it's uh, the success of this project that NASA saw and, and, and decided that you know, maybe there's uh, some cooperation that could be carried out here?
4: Uh, sure. In this program, uh, NASA actually responsible for carrying these uh, instrument to International Space Station. I mean, that's by the Space Shuttle, okay? However, uh, we are responsible for the uh, uh, space-grade computers uh, in the AMS instrument. So for this space-grade computer, the the most important thing is that uh, uh, the reliability, even under the extremely harsh environment in the space, for example, the uh, radiation and uh, the heat problem. So I think uh, we have done a great job. And uh, even NASA can understand that we have this kind of capability to be a partner for further uh, space exploration programs.
1: All right, let's leave behind uh, all, all, all the science and the engineering stuff and get to kind of a, a broader question, uh, yeah. just in terms of why this kind of a project is important to begin with. I mean, uh, obviously, space travel, space exploration, it's very uh, inspirational. But what what would this mean for Taiwan uh, in practical terms, if it's able to participate uh, in a project like this?
4: Okay, you know, for so many years, uh, I think Taiwan is famous for its uh, electronic uh, industry. However, the uh, benefit that from this industry actually become lower and lower, okay? So I think we have to create some uh, more add-on valued uh, industries uh, from our, you know, uh, research and development. And uh, we suddenly realized that uh, the space uh, industry will be one possible direction for us. Uh, to develop, since we have some uh, experience uh, in this area, and also uh, uh, in this uh, uh, space uh, industry, it's uh, really you know uh, focus uh, emphasize on the heritage. So we really need to build our own our on a successful story, a, su- a successful experience, and uh, the most uh, uh, efficient way is try to have uh, international cooperation, so that can sp- speed up to build up our heritage. Mm.
1: So, so, I mean, this is something that, uh, if, it, if it's successful, could really inspire a lot of people to get involved, more involved yes. in the sciences and engineering.
4: Not only just engineering. For example, for those uh, uh, components we uh, build, it may possible to you know, just uh, go into the space I- industry to be the vendors for the uh, whole uh, supply chain. So that might be the uh, opportunity for us I and mean, for our uh, industry.
1: Mm. All right, I just want to close on one final question uh and this is going to be a little bit less professional of a question uh more more personal almost in a way uh, just, you know, space exploration, space technology is something that uh, all of us on the outside who don't really have much experience, we, we all find it very uh, exciting. It seems very cool, very exciting that Taiwan is getting more involved in something like this. But just on a personal note, can you tell us uh, how you felt when you heard the news that maybe uh, you'd have the chance to work with NASA uh, on, on a project like this? Uh, w- was this exciting news for you?
4: Sure, sure. That's absolutely exciting news for me. Because uh, for the uh, space exploration, actually, it will be a dream for many, many children, for many, many adults. Okay, I'm just one of them. And, uh, uh, and also, uh, you know, for a long journey for, uh, for this kind of uh, deep space exploration, we need a lot of resources. If we can successfully use the resources uh, in other uh, planets other than the Earth, then, you know, that that's, uh, that's uh, one uh, you know, uh, key factor for us to make these dreams come true. So I'm really excited.
1: All right. Well, we were speaking there to Hank Han. He is, once again, the director of the International Cooperation Program uh, at the Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology, which may, in a couple of years, uh, be leading Taiwan into the stars, or at least to the moon. Uh, Hank Han, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. All right, and uh, we turn at last to our uh, final story on this rather lengthy show that we've been putting together here. This one, of course, being our uh, podcast bonus story, uh, somewhat on the lighter end of things as we try to make it uh, to, you know, round things out on a little bit of a lighter note. In this case, what we got is uh, uh, another flotilla crossing the high seas. Uh, Gavin, this one's somewhat less successful.
3: Yeah, this isn't a flotilla. This is a two primitive straw canoes. Yeah, you know, for for its time, it would have been a flotilla. We've actually talked about this story before, because of course this is the, the Japanese researchers who basically are trying to prove or test a theory that the early ancestors of the Japanese came to Okinawa from Taiwan, right? Thirty thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Now these two straw straw canoes they left Japan's Yonaguni Island on Sunday on a planned seventy five kilometer voyage to. I'm going to say this wrong. Irimote Island. OK. So they, they were sailing from Yonaguni to Irimote Island. Both, they're both parts of Okinawa Prefecture. It was a 75-kilometre voyage.
1: It's a test voyage. Now,
3: the crews were navigating by the sun and the stars on mm-hmm. these canoes, which measured 6.4 metres in length and 1.3 metres in width. And they were made of a, a raupu, which is a type of bulrush that grows naturally on Yonaguni Island. Wow. And they were modelled on reed boats still in use on Lake Titicaca which, of course, is in the Peru-Bolivian border area. So
1: they're really trying to reach back into the distant past yeah, yeah. to be- see if this is possible. Yeah,
3: yeah because researchers have hypothesized that ancient settlers travelled to Japan from Taiwan through the Nansei Islands, where their many relics dating back more than 30,000 years have been discovered. Okay. Now, they set off on these canoes... Unfortunately, uh, the, from the reports that I've got here, a strong swell forced the suspension of the voyage Sunday night, and an escort ship towed the two reed canoes for a short time before basically they resumed their maiden voyage Monday morning.
1: Taken down by a strong swell.
3: Basically, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so, so, so. But what's
3: relevant to Taiwan in this, of course, right. is not only do they think people went to Okinawa from Taiwan the same group of researchers say that this if this if this trip had been successful they did plan next year to sail from Yonaguni to Taiwan or Taiwan to Yonaguni right this
1: was supposed to be a preliminary uh, a pre- test yeah, yeah. they couldn't even make it through the preliminary test Yeah, yeah. apparently
3: apparently yeah so it didn't quite work the way they thought it was going to work. They planned to do it in one go, basically. They said mm-hmm. if it works in one go, we will go from Yonaguni to Taiwan next year to prove this could happen.
1: So they just need to pick a, a time of day with fewer strong swells, I guess.
3: Or take a bigger boat. A bigger boat.
1: <laughs> Gavin is uh, a, a proponent of bigger boats. Yeah, uh, obviously.
3: big boats. Big mm-hmm. boats to have big things on. Mm.
1: (laughs) Donovan, uh, do do you have any emotional investment in this theory here uh, that, you know, Taiwan is the ground zero for the population of many of these uh, Pacific islands?
0: Yeah, well, I've been reading about that, and I think they really shouldn't have been in such a rush to to try and get this done so fast. Mm. Um, But, yeah, no, I think this would be very interesting if, if that's indeed the case. I mean, obviously, you know, Okinawa was, you know, an independent kingdom for a really long time, and, you know, the kingdom of Ryukyu, and and they have their own independence supporters there, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not Japanese exactly, historically. So uh, it, that would be a very interesting one, because it would also suggest, you know, there's the whole Austronesian, everything from Madagascar to Hawaii to Easter Island, and, you know, all of these areas, uh, originally came from people... Out of Taiwan, and it would be interesting if that actually went north to include Okinawa.
1: Mm. But uh, it all hinges on apparently these Reed canoes that aren't doing too well. Uh, Brian, Brian, what about you? Is, is this a theory that
2: uh, you've spent any time thinking about? It's interesting, um, you know, just just the question of national origins. So, I mean, I, I just wonder about this kind of like research. Does it? You know, it points connection between historical Japan and historical Taiwan in a, in a very interesting way.
1: Mm. Well, we still haven't ruled it out. Maybe maybe their boats, you know, we're, we're, were better than we're giving them credit for. Who knows? Uh, I'm sure more attempts are uh, in the works, hopefully. So we can look forward uh, to more of that. Uh, but for now, we're going to have to round out the show. Please do join us again next time, time this week, broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT-FM 100. Uh, we are broadcasting now 15, 20 minutes after the hour. Kind of depends on the commercial load. Uh, you can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. Uh, we're also posting it on the blog these days. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, hey, good night. Uh, Brian Hugh, thank you as well.
2: Thanks for having me. I enjoyed
1: my time. And Donovan Smith.
0: Dan, I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon.
1: Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.
0: Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget
3: to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news, only on ICRT FM 100.
1: Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps.
3: Take your time. Yes, wonderful, absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> hey, yes, good evening and good night.
1: Yeah, there we go. Now that that's the take, that's the take right there. Money.